Hello, internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I've learned the hard way that there is such thing as too much ketchup. With me <laughs> is... Tragic. I'm Lindsay, and I learned this week uh, that gams mean legs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I had no idea. I thought a gam was related to a yam. Oh, I knows? thought it was boobs. Oh. No, them legs. It's them legs, them gams. Them gams. Did not think it was titties. Uh, I'm I'm Sarah, and I'm a doctor now. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Woo! I just love the dichotomy of I. I don't think it was titties. I'm a doctor. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> I just love that. Uh, this is me. <laughs> And this is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes. Just like Drew said, we all start on the same page of Wikipedia. We click around until we find something metrically interesting that we cannot wait to share with each other and with you. This week, we started on the ISBN page, or I didn't even bother to look up what ISBN means. It's the thing that's on all your books. <laughs> the book number. The book number. book number. Mm-hmm. There it is. <laughs> sure, S is standard, maybe. I didn't stay there long. Um, where did everybody end up this week? So I, I ended up uh, on planetary protection uh, slash planet, uh, planetary defense. Um, so I ended up on two pages because I did a bad thing and I forgot to read the first line on one of the pages. Because uh, I wanted planetary defense, but I've read the whole page for planetary protection, so I'm gonna gonna present both for you. Nice. Oh, great! Yeah. And where were you, Drew? I ended up on punctuation. Oh, interesting. I have such a gripe with punctuation. <laughs> I just it stresses me out. So I'm so excited to learn about the the devil who invented it. <laughs> <laughs> And I landed on hybrid beasts in folklore. Ooh. Well, okay, so. <laughs> go, 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 go. Jinx, jinx, jinx. Well, I was going to say before we dive into all of our topics, it is time for question of the week. Drum roll, please. This week's question is if you could send anything to space, what would it be? Drew, I feel like I neglect you and I always put you second and I would like to wholeheartedly apologise because you're number one. You're both number one in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to throw to Drew this week first. What would you send to space? What would I send to space? So I was thinking this is something that you're sending to space and observing, correct? Yeah, like an experiment or it could just be like an Elon Musk Typer, you just want to yeet something out there to prove that you can. Like with his red Tesla roadster. I feel like I would love to see a dog in zero G. Just like, just like trying to figure out like what the hell's going on. I feel like that'd be so <laughs> funny. Just like, just floating around. Yeah, a little doggo in a little spacesuit would be very, very cute. I would love to see that and just have them like float around in zero G and be like, what's going on? I'm a dog. (laughs) That's so cute. I would love that. What would you pick, Sarah? Oh, um, 
I don't know. There's so many things I want to send off to space. Um, probably some some really neat microbes. So microbes just are little legends in microgravity. They bloody love it up there. And so there's a heap of different microbes that do lots and lots of different things. But one of them is this microbe that can, or type of microbes um, and bacteria that can help with mining. So it can help get your your metals separated from your bedrock um and that would be really interesting there was just a nature paper published this week about how some of them work like 400 percent more effective in microgravity which is awesome um wow. but something i actually am sending to space in less than a month is yogurt we're going to ship yogurt or bacteria to make yogurt up up to space and let it float around uh in zero g for a few days <laughs> oh interesting and are you gonna taste the yogurt when it comes back oh hell yeah yeah we're gonna be able to culture it um so make uh (laughs) (laughs) make offshoot cultures from it and then make our own yogurt to taste that's as well as well as do all the science of the dna and all that jazz but we are definitely gonna taste it (laughs) that is really awesome yeah what about you Lindsay? um probably just elon musk <laughs> with a with a catapult, like and no spacesuit. <laughs> no space. <laughs> That's gonna be one mighty catapult. <laughs> it would be, yeah. It would be. I mean, this is about engineering and science, and I think that's in line with my morals. Anyway, what should we talk about English. first? A punctuation. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it actually took me four clicks to get to punctuation from ISBN. Um, I went from ISBN to hyphen to dash to m dash to punctuation. So it was a, a very short trip. Hmm, those are all interesting, though. What's an m dash? Yeah. It's a specific type of dash. Um, I didn't read too much about it, or else I would have been trapped on it. Um, but <laughs> didn't want to get trapped. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to get trapped on the M dash. Um, I think it's the shorter of the two dashes that um, can be used to offset a sentence. Not offset a sentence, but can you be used to um, like put on either side of a dependent clause, and then you you can finish off a sentence that way. Oh. It's like uh, it's, so it's it's like saying that is to say. Um, you know what I mean? It was. It, uh, it's it. You have it the other way around, Drew. It's the longer one. Oh, okay. Well, so the short one is called an N dash, and the longer one is called an M dash. Hmm. I never learned that. Maybe I did. <laughs> the reason is because it's the length of an N and the length of an M. That's how you tell oh, the wow. difference. Oh, That's wow. Cool. That makes that makes sense, but it's also not important in my life. <laughs> well, you know, like when you type dash twice and it gives you the long one. Yeah, though I do. I I enjoy. I think aesthetically, I like the long dash more. That's the M dash. That's the M dash. Fuck, I got them confused. Well, shows how much I I learned from that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's good that you listen to the rules. <laughs> yeah, you didn't get caught. I didn't get caught on that. 
Um, so back to, back to, to punctuation. Uh, so as I do normally, let's start out by defining what punctuation actually is. Please. So punctuation is, please, okay. <laughs> <laughs> punctuation is the use of spacing or conventional symbols called punctuation marks as we know them and certain typographical devices as aids in the understanding and correct reading of written text, either verbally or non-verbally. So punctuation um, is extremely vital to written English um, because it just helps really define the meaning of sentences because sentences can change their meaning completely if you use the wrong punctuation or different punctuation. And uh, I have now come to realize that verbally expressing the examples that were given in this section may be a little hard to convey over audio, but I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to express punctuation without, <laughs> without text is kind of hard. Um, so the first just, example I can is, just imagine you taking a longer break and being like, that was an example of a colon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> So the first example I have is eats shoots and leaves, meaning that the subject eats the vegetative shoots and leaves. While if the statement were to have commas after each word, the meaning would completely change. Eats Ooh. shoots and leaves, meaning that the subject eats something, shoots a weapon, and then leaves the scene. So just that slight change in punctuation completely changes the meaning of the sentence. And I found that really, really cool. So I just, you know, the Wikipedia article calls this disambiguation of language so punctuation disambiguates written language and that's that i just thought was really 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 cool we you and, reminded uh, me of my favorite example what's your favorite example we already ate grandfather <laughs> <laughs> if it's not clear the, the comma after eight is the difference. I think whenever I see it online, it's the difference between cannibalism and, and not. And, not. <laughs> and eight is the difference. Uh, no, a comma is the difference. That's funny. Yeah. That is very funny. Oh, I think, oh, I, I always see it as a comma can save your life. That was it. That was, that was. A comma can, a comma can save grandpa's life. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I really like that example. That's good. Um, but, now uh, let's get into what I was very interested in, which is the history of the punctuation. And now Sarah can learn <laughs> learn the devil behind uh, behind punctuation. I feel it's bad actually a now few devils. because it does make sense, and I do appreciate it. And so now I just feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's blood on your hands now. <laughs> Go to the apology corner. <laughs> I'm very, very sorry to all of those who enjoy punctuation. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> so the first writing systems employed by humans were either logographic, such as Chinese, or symbolic, such as the Mayan script, both of which inherently do not need punctuation or even spacing. And these languages do not need punctuation because their entire morpheme, or word, is typically clustered within a single glyph. So this means that spacing does not help distinguish one word from another because the glyphs inherently do that themselves. So you, as I said, uh, you have one glyph that um, by itself doesn't need any spacing around it because it just, you know, it, it's its own unit it just of is. words. I like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like that would have been easier for me as a child to have learned rather than trying to, to figure out English language and spelling. 
Yeah. I think once uh, learning it at such a young age would really help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, it's interesting uh, because emphasis can be communicated without punctuation by using separate written forms of a word that inherently have their own emphasis and meaning instead of needing punctuation to express meaning. So what this does is it actually causes the written form of language to be distinct from the spoken form in their individual expressions. And today we see this in written English because this differs slightly from spoken English because not all emphasis can, you know, be conveyed, can be conveyed in print, such as sarcasm. Sarcasm is very hard to express in print. Mm. And that's why on Reddit and places they use like slash S to, to say sarcasm because it's very, very difficult to express in, in a written form. Mm. Yeah. So the, uh, the ancient Chinese classical texts contained no punctuation. However, during the Warring States period in China, the bamboo texts contained symbols such as what looked like a floating L to indicate the end of a chapter and what looked like a, a filled in square to indicate a full stop. And by the Song Dynasty, additional punctuation became common in texts to aid in their comprehension. So it wasn't just... Um, so Chinese does have some punctuation, but early Chinese had like zero punctuation to it. It was just purely the the um, the words themselves. There was no spacing, nothing, no uh, no 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 periods or anything. It was just purely the words. So I just found that very interesting. Do we think? Mm -hmm. Do we reckon that they were sarcastic back in the day? Because I know it, I kind of I guess it kind of depends on what culture you grew up in and around. Like different humor can be very very different across the globe but I love sarcasm and I always think it's kind of funny being Australian because we have like this British type of sarcasm inbuilt in our society and sometimes um Americans like it goes over like no normal American joke uh this is not <laughs> goes we're, gonna, we're gonna have to rephrase this yeah sometimes it goes over like my american friends heads who don't watch some more like british or um australian tv shows and see that type of really heavy sarcasm they just think we're being really mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes that's funny i love to think about like it's unfortunate back in like the hong dynasty with the emperor sitting on his throne being very sarcastic <laughs> let's hope he's not writing it yeah <laughs> so the the earliest alphabetical writings such as hebrew and other similar like families of hebrew um they had no capitalization no spaces no vowels and very few punctuation marks so the writing system worked as long as the written subject matter was in like a very limited number of topics. Mm -hmm. For example, the system worked really well for recording business transactions, but couldn't be used for other topics, you know, let's just say anything else. Not anything else, but, you know, it could only be used for very few topics. Like a great mystery and novel. Probably not. Yeah, not it wouldn't great. work. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't work. And then in Western Antiquity... Most texts were written in what is called scripta continua, which basically means that the text was written without any separation between words. Huh. However, the Greeks sporadically used punctuation marks consisting of vertical arranged dots, where two dots being a dicolon and three dots being a tricolon, both of which were used around the 5th century BC to aid Ooh. in oral delivery of texts. That's awesome. I didn't know it was so old. Yeah, this is one of the first versions of, uh, of punctuation. And this was just to, to let people have like rests in the middle of sentences 
It was, so it was for, just like for spoken giving them text a little bit. only. So for, yeah. Oh, that's yes. amazing. And uh, G- Greek playwrights use symbols to distinguish the ends and phrases written in dramas with, to assist the actors in knowing when to pause. So they kind of had, they kind of used a little bit of punctuation back when you really needed it um, for actors because you have to know when to pause within, you, well, within the text. So I just found that very interesting. And then after 200 BC, the Greeks used a different system called theasis, uh, which used single dots of punctuation placed at varying heights. So it was like um, placed on the bottom of the letters, the middle of the high, of the top part of the letters, to to mark different lengths of pauses within speech. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And so um, these little symbols that they use were called punctus, and there were three different kinds. There's the hypo, sorry, the hypo sigma, um, which is a low punctus on the baseline of a mark to mark off a comma, and comma is spelled with a k here. And a comma in this case means a sentence unit that is smaller than a clause. So you know how we have dependent clauses and independent clauses. This is even smaller than that. This is just like, I I don't know exactly what it is. I don't think it translates well right now, but um, (laughs) this is even smaller unit than a clause. So I just found that interesting. Um, The second punctus is the sigma mens, which is the punctus at mid height to mark off a full clause, kind of like a comma. Mm. And the final punctus is the stigma sorry, telia, which is a high punctus mark, which is the end of a sentence. And so you'd go like the bottom to the middle to the top, depending on how you want, how long the pause you wanted to use. And so I just found that very interesting that they kind of used like height as a way to say, you should pause this much or you should pause that much. Um, And they also used what are called paragraphos, um, which are a horizontal line or a gamma to mark the beginning of sentences. And then they used diplas in the margins of text to mark quotes. And diplas, uh, they look like the angle brackets or the, like the yeah. sideways carrot. So they would use that as quotes in the margins to say this is a quote from someone. And so that's how they would write it is they'd use these little diplas in the, in, in the margins. Um, but th- I feel like Spanish still uses those. Yeah, I actually looked a little bit into, into other languages using uh, punctuation and that is true, yes. Yeah, because I always thought that they were just, like, unnecessarily, like, highlighting something. Because, like, I'll just, like, throw around shit punctuation just to, like, be annoying or to, like, evoke a meaning. Like, put a million slashes when I can't italicize or something. And so I remember being in school and, like, seeing in my Spanish textbook that they had the, like, like greater than and less than signs. And I was like, what? formatting in this book is fucked I was like do we get the cheap books like what is this (laughs) oh my god (laughs) but then you know obviously like you're talking to people like or like texting in Spanish is like oh like that like even if you just like pull up the Spanish keyboard on your phone if you type something you know how there's like that option to tell Siri like no I really mean what I fucking said like yes. that yeah <laughs> that uses it too yeah <laughs> I think I think now that I said that I'm second guessing myself anyway sorry sorry to interrupt no no it's fine I I agree with you um, but the the Greeks actually used um, a coronis. Uh, to indicate the end of a major section in writing. And the Cronus, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's probably best if you just look on the Twitter just to like see what it looks like. Because it kind of looks like a treble clef symbol, but it's like way more fancy than that. Ooh. And um, it was used to like 
you'd have a big chunk of text and then you'd have the Coronis and then you'd go to the next bit of text. And so it's just like a, a big kind of punctuation mark to say this is like one major section to the next major section. So I just found that very interesting. Yeah. Now the Romans in the first century BC also occasionally used symbols to indicate pauses, but the like the Greek thesis um, that I discussed before, they called it the, the distinctionist. Um, this prevailed into the fourth century AD. So that system that the Greeks had with the different um, like heights, that was that um, stayed into the fourth century AD. Um, and then some texts were written in what's called per capitula, where every sentence had its own separate line. That was uh, not very common, but was seen within the Romans. And then uh, the diplets were also used to, for quotations, but they became a little bit more like a comma shape um, at this point. So it was like they kind of digressed a little bit into like a comma shape versus the like the, the very angular um, carrot shape. Mm. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Wait, so that's where the carrot shape comes from? I don't know if it's specifically if the carrot shape comes from that, but um, it is definitely was used as punctuation during that period. So. I, I it know, never it occurred be. to me to even ask, like, why we have the carrot shape on our keyboard. I have no idea why we have the carrot shape, apart from, like, when you're replying to a tweet or a thread and you do, like, carrot, carrot to, like, to say yes up there. Like, I agree. Like, an arrow. Is right, that the right. carrot? Am I, oh, am I talking about the right one? The thing. Yes, that's the, that's the carrot. Yeah. 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 I guess I always thought of it as like when you raise something to the power of like, you know, like as a math thing, I really never. Okay. But we're, but we're speculating. Cause like you said, it didn't say that that's where that came from. I think it actually comes from Lambda. No. Uh. Like the symbol Lambda. If you, if you cut the little bit top off, it, it kind of has that shape to it. So I think it comes from Lambda, the carrot shape. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember seeing something about that. But I'm going to Google this, so this is fast. All speculative, yes. I, I, you keep going. I'm going to Google so fast. Yes. Now we get into the medieval period. Yeah. And can either of you can either of you guess which book really helped in the development of punctuation? The Doomsday. Oh, you're you're close. No. <laughs> the Little Doomsday. No. The Little Doomsday. No. No. no, no. Oh god, is it no. the Bible? You bet it god, is. It's oh, the Bible. No. <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. It's the Bible. Uh. <laughs> Tell us about the Bible. So as a large number of copies of the Bible started to be produced, punctuation developed alongside the Bible because the Bible was designed to be read out loud. So you kind of had to punctuate it so that the reader kind of knew where to pause and, and how to read it properly. So it's Jesus' um, so fault that we have to learn punctuation. I knew it. Not, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> so as the copyists began to well, copy the Bible, um, they introduced a range of punctuation marks to aid the reader, including indentations, various punctuation marks that I described previously. Mm -hmm. So they had the, the different like dots on to, to say different pause lengths. And then um, they also started to produce a very an early version of capital letters. Oh. And so we kind of are seeing the, the beginning of a sentence structure that we know today. Oh, wow. This is where it's like kind of kind of forming. Oh, that is very, very important. Yes. Yes. 
Um, so in the 7th and 8th centuries, Irish and Anglo-Saxon scribes, whose native language did not derive from Latin, added more visual cues to text, where the Irish scribes actually introduced um, the practice of separating words. So this used to just be like huge chunks of text, and now oh with God. the Irish scribes, they're starting to like space it out, and so you end up with like spaced spaced writing. So what year is this now? Like I'm trying to keep track of how many years it took like the English language should develop a space. They said this is the 7th to 8th century. So, okay, but we started out like BC, like 500 yes. BC, right? Yes. Like a thousand-ish years. Yeah, like a thousand years to create either the concept of like a space or like a new sentence starting. Yes. Wow, yes, it makes you really appreciate language. Well, you know, we'll we'll get to how it was standardized because this is like this is completely. It's still the wild west at this point. <laughs> like, you know, this is this is just like scribes kind of being like, I'm going to help someone out here mm. when they read this, and so they started to add this because this wasn't standardized at all. This was just purely like one one guy saying, you know what, I'm going to make this a little easier on on the person reading it. Good on it. And so they'd add these marks. Yeah. So I, I guess <laughs> if you wanted a book or if you wanted a copy of the Bible, you could probably go and get, like, the most popular scribe way of writing because I guess they all had their own, like, little flair or little jazz that they added to it <laughs> to make it a bit easier to read. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I, what I gathered was that it's, like... They all had their own little flares, as you said. That's really That's so cool. cool. I like that. I also feel like maybe just kind of speculating from the pieces that you told us that, you know, like so so much of the Bible was and is performative in the way. I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I I, I mean that to yeah. say. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean like, um, you know, like in a sermon. <laughs> like you got to get into the story and it's kind of like these monks or, or people who are doing the transcribing um you know, they are like the educated people yeah you got to vibe vibe with what you're selling right but i i feel like there's there's very much like even though it's written there's like an oral tradition aspect and so i wonder if like the importance of putting these pauses and and inflections in there is to like disseminate the oral tradition in like a way like it, like make it as close to hearing somebody say it as possible so that like those um theatric elements also get passed along does that make sense yes yeah, that makes sense can I take this moment to follow up on carrots? Yes, go on. The the symbol that's on the American keyboard on the six, right above the six, it drew your right that it is part of a chopped off lambda, but what it actually, the reason we have it on the keyboard is actually because of um, proofreading. Hmm. So it, it the symbol means insert here. Like, you know, like you cross oh. something out or like you're missing a letter and you need to like insert an A or something like that. That makes sense. Yeah, and it's an accent mark when you're trying to like phonetically spell something. Uh. Hmm. Um. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's like an accent mark, and it's a like insert here proofreading mark. It it is not what I thought it was. Hmm. Interesting. That's very interesting. <laughs> That's interesting, though. That's really really cool. It's different. I never thought to ask. Now that we're out of the medieval period. We're into the printing press era, which 
I'm going to say this had the biggest impact on punctuation as a whole. Like, absolutely the biggest impact. Because it had to be standardized? Because it 100% had to be standardized. It had to be standardized and it had to be actually used in a, in, in a reasonable way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the same thing as standardization, but, you know. <laughs> so basically, with the invention of movable type in Europe in, 14, in the 1450s, the amount of printed material and readership greatly increased. And so printed books with uniform letters could be read much faster and could be read aloud much faster, which reduced the amount of time given to analyze sentence structure. So when you had these old, old texts, you had to really sort of spend your time and figure out how the sentence was structured just by, you know, but purely because you're reading handwriting, you're not reading a, a uniform text. And so the sentence structure, you, you had more time to, to like flesh it out. But now with the, the movable type, you don't have as much time. And so the, the increased speed led to, to the standardization of punctuation as it became a necessary, you know, it became necessary. Because um, you had to show where sentences end and began. You had to, you know, really standardize all of that just so that it could actually be used in this, this much quicker pace. Mm. So the standardization actually can be attributed to Aldous Minatus. Um, Minat Aldus Minutus, sorry, and his grandson, and they popularized the practice of ending sentences with a colon or full stop. They invented the semicolon, wow. they used parentheses, and created the modern comma. And by 1566, yeah, right? They did a lot. It's a lot of work. And did you say it was a father-son team? It was a father-grandson team. Father-grandson. Oh, that is so cute. Little father-grandson punctuation team. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they, they, they really modernized what, you know. That, that's crazy. That's what were two people. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by 1566, punctuation was known as like the clarification of syntax. Before it was, it wasn't really that. It was just kind of like, this is how to make, you know, I guess that is syntax, but this is how to, how to read this properly. But now it's actually fully a clarification of syntax. So this means that it took, it took um, sorry, this means that it took the use of publication. Uh, God, I can't fucking read right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this means that the use of punctuation was not standardized until the in invention of printing. And so um, now we move on to electricity. So the, in, the introduction of electrical of telegraphy, um, which is the telegraph, of course, uh, with a limited set of, yeah, the limited mm -hmm. set of transmission codes and typewriters with a limited set of keys further influenced punctuation. For example, the curved quote and apostrophes were all collapsed into, into two characters. The hyphen, minus sign, and dashes were all collapsed into a single character, and spaces were standardized to be a full character width. Oh my god, so when was this? This... I don't have an exact date on it, but um, this is a much more modern thing that, yeah. that, you know, the spaces were standardized because before that, Good. spaces yeah. could be as big as you wanted with the movable type. So this is just like, this is just because of a typewriter, now we have wow. a space is this big. Yeah. Which, I don't know, that's super interesting. This is like when it comes to, like, programming and, if, yeah, like, when you, when you use programming, you use tabs and, like, a tab is exactly four spaces. But if your computer's not set up right and a tab accidentally does, like, less or greater than the four spaces, it can completely destroy um, 
the program that you've been writing or like yeah. trying to run it in a different script editor, editor that has different spacing. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. it's the bane of my existence is accidentally <laughs> opening a script in the wrong editor. Script editor, uh, yeah. Painful, painful. Well, punctuation and script editing, are, they're, uh, that's a whole different field. That's like... bane, bane of my existence <laughs> is spelling and script editing. So now that we're in the computer era, uh, punctuation has continued to evolve, such as the symbol, the at symbol, um, which is now very commonly used on Twitter and in emails, um, used to be only used for uh, sellers of bulk oh. commodities who would say like 10 pounds at $2 per pound. That's how the at symbol was used. Oh. But now, now it's actually like way more present. And uh, this, uh-huh. the tilde symbol, you know, the right next to your escape key, yeah, yeah. Or below your escape key, it's a little um, w- now wiggling. has wiggling, Wiggle yeah, now has completely. yeah now has completely different modern uses compared to it used to be um used next to vowels and now it's just like it has the meaning of like approximately and and it has quite a few other meanings now has all these modern uses that it didn't previously and so punctuation is even evolving today and so i want why did it used to be used next to vowels I'm not 100% sure. It didn't really specify exactly why it was used next to vowels, mm. but I think it was a um, maybe a, a type spacing thing because they, they were talking about how it used to be used in like um, when they were originally printing books. It talked about how like it was used back then, but now it's used to, to mean a few other things. I don't... The tilde... Um, I think there's a whole Wikipedia page just on the tilde, so... Uh, I think I'd have to get more information from that, but um, it's definitely definitely has changed in recent history. Huh. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's it's punctuation is changing even today. That's so um, I really wanted to end off with some novel punctuation marks that I thought were super useful and would like to see used more commonly. Yes. <laughs> yes, um, please. <laughs> because there, these are now these um, the first set. They're based off of the exclamation mark and are like modifications of the exclamation mark um, by a French author, Harvey Bazin. Mm. Uh, He proposed a series of punctuation marks. So the first is the irony point, which (laughs) looks like an exclamation mark with a half circle around it. And um, this is to denote irony, of course. And so it just, it makes the the sarcasm Mm -hmm. or irony, it makes it all very clear that you're using that in a sentence and it's like you know allows you to to really see that just just for the symbol um then there's the love point which looks like an exclamation mark that's bent into the shape of a heart oh, that's one of my favorite emojis is that an emoji <laughs> no i don't think it's an emoji i'll have to show you what it looks like oh um, is it just a cute like uh, does it still have the little like shoe at the bottom yeah it's got a little dot shoe? and then the, the 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 like the long segment is bent in the shape of a heart. Yeah, oh, that's an cute. emoji. Why, is it? Why don't we have this on our keyboard? I would use the irony and the love exclamation mark because I I'm one of those people who uses exclamation marks marks almost too often. Like I have to dial it back. Oh yeah. shit! It is an emoji. I told. I know because I am constantly screaming love for things. <laughs> but I didn't know that was actually a punctuation mark. I thought that was just made for the emoji era to express what I'm trying to express. 
It's just for Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> Yelling with love. Um, is it not the emoji? They look like. No, it's definitely not the emoji. But it, oh. it looks close to that. Um, okay, well, now I have more questions than I had before. What is this, then? Wee, 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 I love you. Look at that. That's what it looks oh, like. Oh, that's, like, if I wanted to put this emoji, but, like, oh. in a song. That looks like an ass. No, well, hearts are, hearts are designed to look like an ass. Or maybe um, something that lives below or in front of an ass. It looks inappropriate. <laughs> that looks inappropriate. I like Lindsay's, <laughs> Lindsay's emoji way better. Wait. Maybe this is ye I'm older so- emoji. I'm sorry. It has flaps. <laughs> you 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 are sensationalizing this. That is not at all. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The poor, it, it's, I would use it less seeing what it looks like now. <laughs> no. No. Oh, I feel bad. I feel bad for it. What is it, Drew? What is what? What is, what is, what is a love point used for? Um, it's just to express love. Okay. So, okay. I mean, it looks like it. It looks like something you'd see when expressing love. Alice after dark. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Oh, no. I can't help that it looks like a clip. No! <laughs> no! No! Okay, see, if we were ever, if we were ever unsure before, I am absolutely <laughs> editing this episode because if we trust Sarah to edit this episode, Sarah would just keep that in there. <laughs> I think this is the audience needs to know. You're, you're right. And and I'm going to abruptly change the subject by saying that I was looking up the heart exclamation emoji to see if it's the same thing. And yeah. completely unhelpfully, Emojipedia.org says um, it's a decorative exclamation mark similar to the way the man in the business suit is levitating. What? In that, in that emoji. Wow. Very, very helpful. So helpful. What else have you got for us, G? So we have the irony so, and the love point. Uh, there's the authority point, which looks like an exclamation point with an upside down smile at the top, uh, which is used to express authority. I don't mm. know exactly what that means. Um, there's the doubt point, which looks like an exclamation mark that's bent into the shape of a question mark. So it's kind of jaggedy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cute. Um, and that's just used to express doubt. Mm. And then Wait, the that's so aggressive. <laughs> you know what? Let me sh- let me show you what it looks Cause like. Because I'm imagining oh. like a really angry question mark. Like I really don't think that that is true. That's what that says to me. This also uh, looks like what roller it- rink floors looked like in the '90s. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like roller rink carpeting. Yeah. No, it does look a little aggressive now looking at it. It doesn't look friendly. The final two bits of punctuation that I have are the exclamation comma and the question mark comma, or the question comma, Mm. which are very similar to the normal counterparts, except for they can be used in the middle of sentences to emphasize something. Oh, I like that. That's interesting. So you can have like a question in the middle of your sentence or an exclamation in the middle of your sentence. I like that. That's good for people like me who just have a lot of expression that that they need to put, especially in emails, yes. when you want to make sure yeah. that people 
know that you're happy. <laughs> that was so cool. That's like, oh, yes, that's the kind of shit I always wanted to know. Yeah. Right. I always wanted to, I, I was so happy that I ended up on this topic. That was very, very cool. And I'm sorry for being, uh, a Debbie Downer with punctuation at the beginning. I just struggle with spelling, as we all know. <laughs> it's very evident in all of our our very business evident. notes. <laughs> but I really appreciated this. This made me appreciate punctuation a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It made me appreciate it a lot more, too. And I, I think that little... Um, the doubt point, that little nervous exclamation point is a perfect bouncing off for planetary protection oh really yeah because it's kind of like a little nervous a little doubtful um so before we dive in if you've made it this far in the podcast go to itunes and give us a five-star review and we will be your best friends until the end of time and it really helps (laughs) us out um and if you've done that, then you get the reward about learning about how the planet might die, which I and think you get a heart exclamation emoji from me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Lindsay will heart exclamation emoji you. Yeah! Wow! <laughs> wow! <laughs> Alrighty, um, are you guys ready to talk about possible wipeout events for our planet? Aww. Yes, hundred percent. I'm so into it. Yeah, Lindsay's less into it. You don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me nervous. Well, big girl doesn't want to die. <laughs> so, I clicked on so the page I ended up going to. So, I did a little wild ride. So, in the the ISBN number, there was a link for um like error checking. And I clicked on that and I went down this rabbit hole of like error checking within numbers and within code. Um, because in when you're sending large amounts of data across very big distances, like what you might do with spacecraft out in the outskirts of our solar system, you need to have um, algorithms and buffers in that can fill in missing bits of data and, and get rid of any errorous data. And then from that, I ended up landing on um, planetary protection interesting okay yeah and so i landed on planetary protection thinking it was going to be about how to protect our planet from like aliens or asteroids or you know um did not read the first sentence that says not to be confused with planetary defense (laughs) which is precisely Uh, what you proceeded to do (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly So I missed that because I wanted to scroll down to the history and I started reading the history and realized I was on the very wrong page, um, but it was still very fascinating. So I'm going to give you some planetary protection and some planetary defense, if, if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Yes, please. Okay. Okay. So what do you guys think planetary protection means? It means in case Earth is afraid of getting hacked, it has a pin number. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, bank account. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> For our galactic accounts. Yeah, yeah. Because Earth doesn't have a lot of gold, so we need to protect it. <laughs> so it's our pen. It's our global pen. <laughs> That's great. 
Drew, what would, what would you say? I would say it's something involving like planning for the future of if the planet goes to shit, what happens kind of a thing. Mm. So that is what I thought too, because that's the vibe I was getting. Um, we're wrong. It's actually oh. about protecting other planets from us because we we are the issue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I like this. Um, so it's uh, mainly at the other planets that we share the solar system with. So, you know, like Mars, Jupiter, Venus, all, all of those good ones. Uh, chuck in Uranus for some giggles. Um, but yeah, so it's protecting them from us when we try to explore them because our... Our Earth is manky with all sorts of organisms and germs and viruses and and all of this. Like we're we're steaming with life here. Like we have so much life, which is great for Earth. Not great though if you're taking it to an alien planet or um, a planet where we don't know the full um, spectrum of what is alive there. So we don't we haven't found life outside of Earth yet. But just say if Mars did have very delicate single-celled organisms we wouldn't want to completely wipe them out with a virus or with a, a microorganism that we've accidentally sent on one of our spaceships there yeah no and it's gross to think of earth as steaming with life yeah it is gross <laughs> but that's how i see it Ew. that is gross <laughs> like you mean Wait, you said steaming, not I think I teeming. Meant to, uh, yeah, I meant to say teeming and an S stuck in there, stuck in there. <laughs> so I had to go with it. Did you like my false confidence? I loved it. It made me Thank feel you. like that's art. Like it made me feel something. Do go on. So some what I, some steamer. No, oh, but mistakes they're back <laughs> my my type my typo okay anyway, come on. that was from so, another episode so uh what i found really interesting was not all places in the solar system are treated equally which why would why would they be humans we have trouble with the idea of equity and equality equality which i like to think our generation is highly working on um but yeah it turns out that some places you go on the solar system eh, less less important to keep clean wow which i thought was really hmm. fascinating so there's yeah diff yeah different categories of um like recommendations for how clean and sterilized anything you send could be and so I'll, I'll give you some category examples so there's there's technically four or five five we haven't gotten to yet but in the future we could get there so uh in category one uh these are the places that are unlikely to have the ability for life to exist just based on the chemical evolution that we understand mm. comes from life so these are places like the sun and mercury so really 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 hot um <laughs> places that don't have all of the or we don't think they have all of like the the bases for trying to build dna so the amino acids that you might need um and places that it would just be way too hot to to get the chemical reactions that that we need and so they are categorized as yeah category one no protection needed so technically you could 
build a rocket in your backyard, touching it with your germy hands and send it to, uh, to Mercury and that would be fine. Wow. Yeah. Um, which I think is really interesting and we haven't actually explored Mercury in depth before. And so I don't know if this would change if we sent a lander down there, but probably not based off these, these recommendations. Like it almost sounds like the assumption is that like the conditions of the, the planet or even like the sun would obliterate like any of our like mark that's left behind. Like, you know, presumably the like radiation from the sun Mm. on Mercury is so strong that it would like, burn up those those germy hand residues yeah yeah so if there is well at least the life that we know probably wouldn't survive there very well but that's the assumption right it is an assumption yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Hmm. so that's that's your like lower tier if you just want to have a little fun and send a spacecraft without too many uh, red flags or red tape to go through mercury that's your place (laughs) Um, The next place we have is Category 3, sorry, Category 2, and this is any mission to locations of significant interest for chemical evolution uh, and the origin of life, but only a remote chance that the spacecraft-borne contamination would actually compromise those investigations. So this could include places like uh, the Moon, Venus, and some comets. Um, And so this, you know, only small amounts of red tape documentation and procedures you have to go through um, with most of it is just it, you don't have to do a full sterilization again you just have to document exactly what you're sending there so so is the the subtext there um, we don't think that life can survive here so you don't need to be as careful yeah I think the subtext of this is that you know, there is some interest for, like, chemical evolution might occur there, um, but the the spacecraft-borne contamination is probably very mild compared to the, the full site. So, like the moon landing, for example, the, the landers, um, even though they were, they were somewhat sterilised, any life that was on them probably wouldn't survive very long again there at right. all because it wouldn't hmm. have its normal environment so it's probably a smaller risk to to anything that is there because you know if it can survive long enough it could globe track around the moon but it's unlikely that that could actually happen yeah that yeah that makes sense that's kind of what i'm imagining Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. and same with venus because venus is just a um she a beautiful lady but feisty and hot planet so the only missions that have actually touched the ground on Venus, um, the the first successful one was a Russian mission. And after a minute or two of being in the atmosphere on the ground, like the circuit started to melt. It is so hot that it just destroyed this poor spacecraft. It was able to send like two, three pictures before it died. Um, A very noble and glorious death. But again, so hot and so different to our environment that anything that was alive on there probably wasn't alive for very long. Um, (laughs) So, 
we're, we're moving up though. We're moving up to places where we've got to be a bit more careful. Category three is when we're talking about flyby or orbiter missions. So things that aren't necessarily going to touch the surface of a place, uh, but have the potential to crash into them. Um, so this might be very familiar with uh, like the Cassini mission, where we ended up okay. crashing that dead into Saturn just so the spacecraft wouldn't accidentally land and touch a moon that could be very important. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So these are these are listed as those that, you know, there's a significant chance that a contamination could compromise uh, current or future investigations. Um, so, yeah, talking about Cassini around Saturn. So when Cassini started to get to the end of its life, uh, it technically could have stayed in this uh, orbit around Saturn, like a super highly elliptical orbit, um, and you know, most likely not have crashed into anything important for thousands and thousands of years. However, there is the chance that it would crash into some of the moons or would disrupt some of the um, some of the other debris that is around the planet and it could contaminate it that way. And having that spacecraft crash into one of the moons that are of interest, like Enceladus, uh, would be an absolute disaster because uh, these are places where we think it's pretty likely that we would find life and being able to right. discriminate whether it's our life or not is really important so it was just easier to let Cassini dive straight into the depths of Saturn and burn up and know that we're not contaminating anything important and then run that risk which I think is yeah. really really cool yeah and interesting that like it also implies that Saturn is way less likely to have life than uh and Sedalis. yeah yeah because it's just a big hunking gas gas planet so we don't know that there's no life there there could be some weird organisms that live in the the upper atmosphere um but mm -hmm. from the life that we know that exists here on earth it's probably very very unlikely so it's more likely that there's life living in the subsurface oceans on the moons rather than in the gas clouds which is really cool yeah, so, that there's like ranked probability. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And so this is where we get to category four, which is probably the most um, important. And so this is um, landers or probe missions to the same locations as category three. So places of interest like that include uh, Mars and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and some asteroids as well. Um, and so this is... Uh, one of the highest ones with category four because you want to be able to sterilize the entire spacecraft and landers uh, before actually packing them up and sending them over so you need to have a really low probability that any of the microorganisms that are left on these uh, would would interact with with your investigations on the surface or could negatively in fact uh, impact any indigenous organisms that are on the surface of this planet or moon that you're going to mm. um, and then this mm -hmm. is breakdown into a heap of different categories because it depends on what your investigation is so if you're sending a spacecraft uh, to mars just to measure maybe it's earthquake activity earthquake marsquake activity uh, and you're not necessarily looking for organic life then you still have to have it somewhat sterilized but uh, it can have a, a higher number of spores per per square meter because you're not 
the science that you're doing isn't taking samples from beneath the spacecraft or from the air to try figure out if there's life in it. So you're less likely to bamboozle yourself <laughs> with your own <laughs> microbes. But then there is, uh, if you are sending a spacecraft that is looking for that organic life or traces of organic life, then you need to have very, very low spore count per square meter um, just to be able to have value in your science results because you don't want to send you know a multi multi-million dollar spacecraft and get a result that there's life and it's accidentally your gross bacteria from earth that would be right. a major bummer Alrighty, so we just wrapped up with category four which is you don't want to contaminate yourself if you're doing the science down there uh, which fair enough can you imagine sending a multi-million dollar mission and all you get is your own bacterial results that would that would suck yeah that would really <laughs> suck um but so they're all the categories we've had to deal with in recent history but there's one that is coming up so that we'll need to deal with uh in the near future and this is a category five um which i think just sounds a little spooky category five yeah it definitely <laughs> and, does <laughs> and dun, so dun. This is the idea of if you are not only sending a spacecraft to one of those important places in the solar system, but you're going to be sending the sample back home. Uh, so you want to be able to avoid contamination, uh, both from if there is living organisms uh, on wherever you're sending that sample home from. You want to make sure that they don't, you know, wreak havoc on the ecosystem wherever that probe lands here on Earth. Uh, but you want to protect whatever environment you've sealed. So say you're on Mars, you grab some dirt sample that has little microorganisms in it, which is fantastic. You want to protect them from Earth when they get back. So you want them to be completely sealed oh. off in a, in a very sterilized chamber so that they will only then be opened in a clean room once here back on Earth and there will be no cross-contamination from the two worlds, um, which is really tricky to try plan for. And, and that hopefully in our lifetimes we will see humans bringing back uh, Mars rock samples or Mars dirt samples, which will be really, really cool. And we've already had some asteroid sample um, brought back as well last year. Some sample landed uh, in Australia in its closed little sterilized box um, and is hopefully being analyzed right now, which is crazy, crazy cool. Um, but yeah, something that I didn't fully consider was really, really important. Yeah. So do they just like in the rover just put like six Ziploc bags on top of each other? <laughs> I think yeah, basically the engineering equivalent to a good Ziploc bag. Very 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 well designed uh, science chambers. Um <laughs> Ooh, chamber. I like chambers. A chamber. Yeah, you can put your sandwich in your your Ziploc chamber. Yeah, this is my lunch can Okay, never mind. <laughs> this is my lunch chamber. <laughs> um, I, I fucked it up. <laughs> oh, Lindsay. Guys, want to see my lunch chamber? <laughs> so, uh, that was a little bit about protecting other places in the solar system. There's a little bit of controversy because some scientists have come out and said we don't need to protect uh, these places as as strongly as we do. Um, oh my god. Yeah, which I think is... So the, the scientific argument for why uh, they think we are overprotecting Mars is that um, so micrometeorite transfer 
happens between the two planets quite often, you know, within the last hundreds, thousands, millions of years, when different asteroid impacts hit uh, Mars, Earth, or any other planet, um, some of the debris can hit escape velocity and just yeet itself out into the path of, of us in the, in the solar system. So the argument is we're doing all of these precautions, maybe even lulling ourselves into a false sense of security, but it may be inevitable. Yeah, so it's kind of that idea of permspermia where uh, life, if it could survive in outer space, if it was yeeted off Earth, so say in the giant collision um, from 66 million years ago when when the dinosaurs were wiped out by the the asteroid that would have sent debris all over the solar system and that debris would have not only hit the moon but it most likely would have ended up in the path of mars and maybe some other gas giant planets and so that what is this called permspermia it's a terrible name (laughs) i i thought that's what you said but that already happened (laughs) twice in this episode where i thought you said something (laughs) awful and i was right (laughs) Okay, cool. Okay, great. Continue. Yeah, so it's not a great name, but uh, break it down. It's the idea that life uh, can kind of transfer itself around the universe. So either from planet to planet or star system, star system uh, type of thing. Um, Yeah, I don't know where it got its name from, but that's its name. Oh, the patriarchy is where it got its name from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, but okay, that's... um, that's something I really never thought of, though, because, like, whenever I think of, uh, like, I call it, like, space conservationism or, like, you know, I like conservation. Because <laughs> it is kind of like, you know, the way that we protect our national parks or national forests, mm-hmm. um, leave only footprints, take only memories. Like, that's the same kind of, like, um, policy yes. that a lot of these <laughs> are trying to express, right? That's going to so- be the sign on the moon when they start doing moon tours, <laughs> leave only footprints. <laughs> Do not take the moon rocks. Security will check. <laughs> yeah, put that on a sign right next to like Neil Armstrong's footprint or something. Oh, I really hope we don't destroy our solar ecosystem. Absolutely. And actually, if if anyone is interested in this kind of thought experiment, um, the new Andy Weir book called Hail Mary is amazing, and you know chats a little bit about. It's a fiction book and it's a fantastic story. Like I was glued to it until 4am finishing it because it was so good. Um, but it talks a little bit about the idea of, yeah, permspermia or, you know, the seed of life, for lack of a better saying, traveling around the, the galaxy and the universe and local star systems. Um, which Mother is... Gaia's eggs. Oh, God. <laughs> Earth, put me on your marketing team. <laughs> she'll take you (laughs) um but yeah so i think that wraps up our planetary perfect uh protection and then i'll do just a tiny little sprinkle of um planetary defense um Mm. which is basically preparing ourselves for the big the big sleep from a big asteroid (laughs) Um, and the main takeaway is that we are not prepared for a giant asteroid collision uh, that we're not we're not uh, we're not capable of being able to stop that right now and so there's actually a mission launching today as we record could the dart mission which is going to try this idea of literally yeeting and ramming a rocket into the side of an asteroid to throw it off course to change its trajectory 
Um, and this asteroid poses no harm. It's actually a, a two-system asteroid. It poses no harm to Earth, but it's a good test to see, you know, can we get enough momentum to transfer into moving quite large space rocks? It was doing nothing wrong? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was doing nothing wrong. And it's it's basically like a mama and a, and a bubba asteroid because it's a big honking asteroid <gasps> with a small one orbiting around it and we're hitting the baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so evil. <laughs> That's oh Earth. Oh, my God. And this is how we find out that asteroids are sentient and then the huge one just changes course <laughs> and it kills us. You killed my baby. To put people at, at, at bay, though, the chances of this happening is very, very rare, but not, not zero. So rare in our lifetime, if we think about the next couple hundred years, uh, maybe even you know a few thousands and thousands of years, pretty rare. Um, but overall, in the span of Earth, you know there's been some absolutely massive asteroid impacts, um, and not just the one from from what wiped out the dinosaurs. There was one back in I think it was 1908, uh, the Tunguska really? event, which I think maybe I've talked about a bit, but it was huge huge impact in siberia and if it had have been over a major city it would have killed millions of people and we were just really lucky that it happened in the middle of nowhere wow yeah and so yeah the gist is we're not super prepared and uh there's not like a global understanding of what we should do if if this happens and so the main idea is that we want to send something to try hit it out of the way um, you know, classic deep impact slash Armageddon type of, of scenario. We're just going to send something there to give it a whack um, or or blow it up. That's another option is to just blow it up with nukes, um, which you can probably tell is an American um, I was going to make that joke. <laughs> But again, we don't know how well this would work. And so the idea is that we have an okay sense of most of the asteroids that are very, very large and very easy to see um, because they're reflective. So they're icy, they can reflect the sunlight and are easy to detect. However, there is hundreds, thousands, if not millions of smaller asteroids, which could pose, you know, a decent amount of risk. Um, which we don't we don't have categorized and the near earth um observatory uh, like does a very good job of trying to classify everything but it's a lot of data and you know we just can't classify everything Mm -hmm. at the moment that's not possible there's not enough sky coverage depth to actually see these things and computational power to predict where to look next once you detect it once um and so the prediction is that, say we predict, we see giant-ass giant asteroids heading straight towards us, um, and we needed to build a rocket, a missile, a bomb, whatever it is, to, to go hit it. The, the projection is that that would take Earth at least three years with our resources and our technology to be able to pull everything together to get this, to get this done. Um, so we need a minimum three years heads up. Yeah, pretty much. And the likelihood is that if it is, you know, maybe it's a comet coming from the outskirts of our solar system zipping by very, very quickly, you don't have three years by the time you spot it. Um, but, yeah, so that's just a little a little downer for the end. <laughs> <is>. <laughs> a little we're fucked by the end. 
Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Not 100%, but possibly. I think it's a really cool topic because I love asteroids. And we think they might have been really important for um, starting the life cycle on Earth as well, so delivering different amino acids and elements that we need here on Earth. Um, so I think asteroids get a bad rap. I think they're just trying to... They're out there, living their life, trying to do their best their best at existing. Um, I imagine these asteroids, like, giant space hands, like, kneading <laughs> dough on Earth, like, punch it over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's some of this. <laughs> get a little admin over here. <laughs> Sprinkle some micrometeorites over here. <laughs> Yeah, it's cute. It is really cute when you put it that way. Um, But yeah, yeah, so that was my planetary protection slash defense spiel. I hope you liked it. I liked it a lot. (laughs) Thank you. Certainly loved it. We're all going to die. Woo. (laughs) Woo, I'm going to talk about about stuff that doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I, uh, not to just completely gloss over the existential nightmare that Sarah has dropped in our labs, but I realized that, um, I also almost ended up in something like punctuation. (laughs) (laughs) Which way did you go? So I, I don't feel like clicking on everything. Uh, One of my favorite poets of all time is uh, Sylvia Plath. And she Mm. likes to throw in the word seraphim, uh, which is also like a biblical word. So I guess it comes up in other places. But the place I was familiar with it was Sylvia Plath. And so one of the words that I uh, had ended up on was seraphim or seraphim. I'm not exactly sure how to say it. Um, And I actually never really knew what that was. But it's kind of like these angelic sort of looking beings it's like beings that have many um wings and it's kind of become a meme now that like biblical angels have like a ton of eyes all over them and look completely terrifying <laughs> yes, well, the place that I, I i almost present so our rule is two paragraphs and it's interesting yep yep i landed on a wiki article that was interesting but one paragraph long so i could not present on it but it was the multi-ocular O. Multi-ocular O. Yes, it is an exotic glyph from the Cyr- Cyrillic alphabet. So it's a it's a spin off the letter O, and it is literally six O's in a hexagon shape, all with a <laughs> dot in the middle of them to look like six eyes. Oh, I I don't like it. It is very cool. Um, it comes from a, it, it's almost like a, a font type from the 1400s. Um, so it shows up, according to this wiki article, it shows up once um, in the 1400s. And um, it's actually included in like the Unicode uh, characters. Oh, wow. So you can type the multiocular O. Um, and it's, it's I, I'm not exactly sure how it's supposed to be pronounced, but um, it was used in a phrase that was describing the seraphim. So it was just kind of, it's something of a, a letter, like a sound, but also like a pictograph in, in like a, a very um, symbolic sort of way. Oh, um, cool. Of, of a, an angel, yeah. 
Um, so I will post that for everybody to see. I'll post for you guys right now if you want to take a look. But I did a stellar job of explaining what it looks like, so you don't need to. <laughs> um, <laughs> with this, there's also the C also. So there's like monocular O, binocular O. And it's like an O with one dot, an O with two dots, and it looks like a weird smiley face. Wow. And then there's the double monocular O that kind of looks like two eyeballs. Um, when did O's get so lit? Like, <laughs> what era was this from? Was this from, um, like, medieval times? I, I guess it would be technically 1400. Yeah, wow. Um, but this goes back to what Drew was saying about things not really being standardized. So yeah. It was just like, oh, here's a great opportunity to just <laughs> depict real subtle. <laughs> um, I'm real upset, though, that um, this didn't come through in the printing press era. Because I would have loved... This having these o's <laughs> this would have been a bit complex i think there's a lot of detail mm. getting these little o's in there or the dots but that's not where i that's not where i landed because um, then i was like oh let's let's think about seraphim a little bit um but i actually ended up on something called hybrid beasts in folklore um so i would like to put a little warning my topic is going to be talking about hybridized beasts, but I'm going to get into some detail of how this goes beyond the realm of fantasy. So there are going to be um, a few passages or a few moments where you will be using your imagination to imagine hybridized animals, and it could be upsetting if you are particularly sensitive to... Um, uh, well, so I'll be, I'll be touching on animal sacrifice. So um, if, if that is an upsetting concept to you, please skip this. We put me last so that you can safely skip the rest of the episode because what's the point in skipping just to the goodbye section and we love Steve. Like, <laughs> like you, you, know. Know we, you know we love Steve. We, yeah, know. let's just get it out front. We love Steve. But, but it, won't be, it won't be gruesome or gory. It will just be factual. If that is something that could be uncomfortable for you, this is a judgment-free zone, and thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. And um, I will definitely see you next week with a better topic. <laughs> um, if you are sticking around, <laughs> we are going to talk about hybrid beasts in folklore. So to warm us up, to warm up our imagination, I wrote down some hybrid beasts that I could remember um, and things that I stole from the article. So... A little game that we're going to play is I'm going to say a hybridized beast, and you guys are going to tell me what ingredients make it up. Yes, I like this. Oh, okay. okay. Okay, so let's start off easy. Uh, what are the ingredients of a mermaid? Fish uh, and human. human. Fish. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Ding, ding, ding both ding, of you, ding. yes. What, what are the ingredients of a centaur? Horse and human. Yes, horse, human. Nice. Ding, ding, ding. What are the ingredients of a griffin? Uh, phoenix? And fox? Bird? Bear? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> eagle and... Eagle and something. It's an eagle... God, it's kind it's of buff. Gorilla? No, it's, it's four. It's four legged. <laughs> what? What? What eagle and gorilla have you seen? <laughs> <laughs> the most fucked up thing I've. That's why we 
have a content warning because Sarah was going to make us imagine an eagle and a gorilla. <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest. I thought griffins, um, I thought they were real. <laughs> but I Phoenixes definitely aren't real. Yeah, well, you said the first ingredient. The first ingredient you said was a phoenix. I thought a phoenix was based off a real bird. Like, obviously, they don't come back from the ashes like Harry Potter. But I thought they were based off a real bird. I don't know my birds. I am not an augurist. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that pretty sure that they're like made of fire whenever they feel like it anyway no oh. a griffin is an eagle and a lion oh a lion that's what i was and thinking. you oh. laughed at gorilla yeah. Yeah. okay yeah don't because that was them. not right <laughs> so here's the real challenge what are the ingredients of a chimera i know that it's a telescope there's a chimera array. No. And that's all I've got <laughs> That's on that. not what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh-uh. There, There are three animals. Can you describe? No, because then I would tell you the animals. Why do I feel like it's got a... <laughs> well, does it have scorpion in it? Or am I way off? No, you're along the right. No, you're along the right track. It's got a weird tail and it's got two heads. So I can that. Okay, sorry, Sarah. I can give you some hints. I or can okay. describe it. It's got, it's got three heads. One of them is its tail. Oh, it's a snake tail. Yep, snake and butt. Snake butt, and it's got. Yes. Why do I feel like it's got a lion head? Yeah, the lion is one and of them. It's got. It's definitely not bear. It's something different. Is um, it on the body of of a different animal? So it's like snake tail, lion head, and then a different body. It's got a second Ooh, head though. That's actually a. It's no, but that that's a tough question, Sarah. It has. I might as well give you the answer. It has the body of a lion, the head of a lion, the udders of a goat. Oh shit! A goat head. <laughs> And a snake tail. So the the third one was a goat. I that that was a hard one. That is hard. Who oh, another one I wrote down was harpy. Who thought of that? The ancient Greeks, I guess. <laughs> Harpy's a bird and a lady. Harpy is a bird and a lady. I forgot that other easy one that I should have thrown in a lot sooner. That was good. You guys did you guys did really good. You did a lot better than the time I asked you for the Bronte sisters' pen names. Oh yeah, we we, we felt that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was good. That was really, really good. So, so what I'm what I'm getting at with with listing all of these um, fucked up things is that um, for a long time in mythology and in ancient times, the idea of a hybridized animal or an animal made of what we would identify as many different parts, many different separate parts, is kind of convolved into one being, and that one being has its own name, um, presumably its own. Uh, sort of mythos that surrounds it, its own maybe personality or temper. Uh, so, yeah, the idea is that uh, it becomes its own entity, even though we would identify it like like we're doing right now as as many different parts. Um, 
there are some people, if we want to talk conspiracy theories real quick, so the uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics and a lot of ancient Egyptian gods themselves are kind of these hybridized like animal human things. I have not proudly been on dates with people who think that the hieroglyphics are what they are because the first beings to visit Earth and tell us how to build the pyramids were aliens and bred with humans and that the hybridized animal humans that you see in hieroglyphics were our true ancestors. Shit. Good. Good. <laughs> and you've met people who believe this. I have dated people who <gasps> believe this. Lindsay. Been on dates. I have been on been dates. Been on dates. Maybe did I they, wouldn't say... Did they disclose this, like, uh, like, second date type of disclosure? Or was this, like, a tenth date this no, came out? Imagine, no. Imagine learning this at a stoplight. <laughs> Get out the car. <laughs> roll, roll, roll. I, I was like, I, I was like, I thought we were just getting Thai food. Like, <laughs> oh my God. I thought we were getting Thai food, not breaking up right now. <laughs> I was like, I can walk from here. Never date anyone from Connecticut. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> is that true? I guess what I'm driving at is that this is not just an ancient belief but it's something that we're all very uh, sort of familiar with now like it's part of kind of the way that we even interact with fantasy i f- i feel like with the popularity of of world of war not even well yeah yeah world of warcraft but i meant to say dungeons and dragons and other just like fantasy games um even just like the the availability of mythology books like how many of us grew up like as kids just thumbing through pages of greek mythology books for fun um i feel like that seems to be a common thread amongst my friends maybe maybe it's not as like universal as i think it is no i used to love it and i used to love watching documentaries on different uh like greek and roman mythologies and ancient history around different beliefs i thought it was fascinating yeah, I, I mean, even in like um, the pantheon of Hindu gods, you see these, um, like Ganesha, for example, has an elephant head and a human body. And there's like a whole myth as to um, how that happened and, and why this human came to have an elephant's head. Um, Narasimha is another um, sort of animal human hybrid who has a lion's head and a human's body. Um, so this is, this is like kind of a common theme. And so the article I read was sort of a list of hybrid beasts, but the reason I chose to talk about it was actually because at the very, very bottom, I found a link to an article that is about a, uh, this happened in 2015, there was an excavation in England of a Iron Age group. They don't know who it was. They don't know the name of this tribe and the tribe left no written records, but they found many buried animals that were hybridized. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wanted to actually talk a little bit about that article and about that science. Yeah. Yeah. So in Southern England, this is where this takes place. Um, the date that they put on it that this the civilization lived somewhere between 400 BC and 43 AD. Um, so that's about, I guess, when the Iron Age was. And what these people would do, they learned, was to refrigerate their food. They would dig these pits in the ground. 
they would put their food in the pits and the ground would keep their food cold. And for whatever reason, after every two years, the civilization would abandon that pit and fill it with the body of a mythical animal. Wow. Okay. What yeah. a ritual. And nobody knows for sure why, but what they do know is that you can imagine back then, this is their livelihood. Like, you know, you need you need these animals to survive. Yeah. And I'll go through a few examples of what they found. But these are large animals. These are horses. These are cows. Like, these are things that, that you would have needed to survive. So, so. they're sacrificing their food or their their clothing like yeah. the their ability to have shelter and be fed to yes to have a sacrifice or a, a gift to whatever they were worshiping I'm, gu- I'm guessing it was maybe a worship thing yeah yeah that seems to be the leading theory um not just a for again, fun lol fun <laughs> <laughs> got bored made a mythical animal yeah it would be a weird hobby that's for sure <laughs> um people I would not put it past people just to... That was actually... You know, you're not that far off, though. Like, when I was reading... I was reading a few articles about the same thing. Because you know how every news... Every interview is going to cover something slightly different. Mm. I couldn't find the academic paper. I wanted to actually read the paper itself. I couldn't find it. But there was a comment on one of the articles that was like, what if this was just some really sick serial killer back then? (laughs) Well, like, so my favorite thing, which I'm sure the listeners by now know that I love archaeology and anthropology and should have done that instead of astrophysics, but I love, (laughs) (laughs) I love this idea of, so when we find things, um, you know, ancient burial sites or whatever it is that we're finding from a past time, we're just kind of inferring what we think things mean based on our knowledge today. And maybe we can like... Uh, use other examples so other civilizations or cultures where we've found things to kind of relate what what it might be whether it's you know an instrument for worship or for pleasure or for whatever it might be but really we have no idea we're just inferring and can you imagine if you know earth ended today and we were just all buried under some rock and you know in a few thousand years someone came and excavated us the crap they would find from the first world (laughs) like they would think that maybe we worshipped a, like a gym god because everyone's got treadmills and bikes in their home. Maybe the <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> like, that it would be bizarre. Like think, thinking about the stuff that that we have, or that we like love rectangles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because we stare at rectangles all day. <laughs> But, like, you know, like, presumably, like, the internet is gone. Yes. So they would be like, wow, these people just, like, loved rectangles. <laughs> yes. And it's, so it's kind of a thing, like, with VCSs and, and tapes, the tape, the magnetic tape will end up uh, not being useful after, you know, 50 to a couple hundred years. So if they find that buried in landfill somewhere, no idea what it means. They can't get the information Heaven. off it. They're just going to be like, did they wind the tape for fun? What was it? What was this? Was it a worship thing? (laughs) Like, their god was Michael Jackson? What? Like, (laughs) so it's, yeah, a best guess is really all anyone can do. And like I was saying before, it's even harder because, like, they didn't leave written records. So we can't even point to a particular god we know they had and say, like, oh, they were doing due diligence to their unicorn god. 
and that's why they did blah 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 because one of the things that they dug up was a horse with a cow horn stuck in the front of its head to look like a unicorn was it completely fossilized or was it just the 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 calcium bone bits they found bones so all of this is based on bones and some of these animals they know died were buried soon after they died because of the way that the ligaments would have held the bones together Mm -hmm. um so i i'm not an expert in that i don't really know how to explain the science of that but um there is evidence that that animals were recently killed and then buried um but some of the other sort of hybrid um mythical beings that they recreated or created in honor of or just artistically created that were found were um, a six-legged sheep oh no um a cow skull with a horse's jaw Hmm. and they've actually found two of these wow yeah so i don't know what the significance of that would have been but clearly um enough that it happened twice and probably the weirdest one that I read was that there was a sheep's body and a cow skull on its rear. So it would have been like a cat-dog situation, but with a sheep and a cow. Wow. Another one that is particularly gruesome is that only one of them had a human in it. Oh, no. And there is... there. Uh, this one is, is even more polarizing among the people who are studying. So... They can tell that whoever this was likely died because of somebody slitting their throat. Okay. So, so it wasn't a natural death. It was... Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, exactly. So they think that she was... This is a woman. They think yeah. that she was killed as a sacrifice. And they know enough about this civilization to know that they did not bury their dead. Oh, okay. So what? what did they do? Did they just let them decompose naturally in the environment yeah yeah that's what they they left them exposed i think is, okay. is what they were saying so what's interesting is that this woman was laid in the um pit yeah uh with her legs and pelvis aligned with the animals that were underneath her Ooh. So the legs and the pelvises of the animals were also aligned and sort of stacked on each other. So they think that this woman, for whatever reason, was also made to be part of the... Um, I keep wanting to say chimera, but now that means something totally different. I, you know, I, <laughs> To be a part of, of this sort of um, collage being. And it's, you know, when I read this, it was like really gross to me. But then I came back to the idea of a centaur or a harpy or things like that. And, and we have no problem imagining this like, you know, human horse or human bird sort of mix up. But then if you like actually saw it in person or saw it with like real ingredients you'd be like that's fucked yeah Yeah. (laughs) really though (laughs) yeah you know it's one of those things i'm totally fine with a cartoon but then the moment you make it real for me i'm like get that shit away from me tag your triggers like that is so bad (laughs) it's it's weird how that single degree so Mm. um this this one sorry i i wrote it later in my list the weirdest weirdest so even more weird than the sheep body cow skull is that they found a dog with three cow jaws radiating around its head wow so like a like a holy mandible dog 
like a like a crown or like a a mane like a fa- yeah yeah wow. um and really so fascinating do they know if like because i guess you could put a dog in there and then if you have the mandibles from your herd or you know your your eating you could just stick them around or do they think it was right more i don't know it I see what you're saying. Like, yeah. did they kill three cows for this, or were the bones laying around? Yeah, were these leftovers um, that then they made some sacrifice or art, whatever it was, with it? Or was it more they needed to make this specific thing? I actually don't know, but I do know that there is evidence that they used bones to make tools. Like, at one point, they um, mention a like comb made of bone so i i don't know if it was so dire that every single part of every single animal had to be put to use because that would say something about how valuable the jaws are even if they were left over um i i don't know and none of the articles actually went into that but that would be super interesting to know were they were they all killed at the same time or like you said was this still laying around or how how important were those extra bits still yeah. laying around was it a sacrifice to do this mm. right how much of a sacrifice cuz then i think that also comes back to why like why the hell did anyone do this <laughs> yeah truly though we're assuming that it was a sacrifice but i mean it might not have been for religious purpose purposes yeah i don't I don't know. I mean, to me, the only part that points to that is really the fact that it was in these um, pits that are, you know, their food, their livelihood. But in the spirit of, um, you know, Nobel laureate disease, like you talked about (laughs) a few episodes ago, Sarah, I'm just going to stay in my lane and leave that (laughs) speculation to the experts. I'm not even going to try. Yeah. Um. (laughs) I think that's fair enough. I think probably the experts, you know. You'll never know for sure. But super, super weird to imagine. And so what I couldn't help but click on after that was a real book from 1984 by a man named Harvey Nash. And it uh, it was actually, sorry, not even a book. It was an essay that I read through. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's called The Centaur's Origin, A Psychological Perspective. Ooh, Ooh how okay. cool. The major highlights are that he wants to know, this guy wants to know, why the hell did humanity um, ever invent a centaur? Why, why did we come up with that idea? Yeah. Why did it become important to us? <laughs> and um, he, there are a few ideas, but to me, the most surprising and striking and the one that he talks about the most is the idea that ancient Greeks would not have known skilled equestrians or horse riders. Like, these would have been foreign invaders coming into their land because the ancient Greeks themselves um, did not do that um, a priori or I guess like you know in way 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 ancient times like somebody had to teach them so the idea is that maybe they saw people coming (gasps) on horseback and they had never seen that kind of mastery before yeah and they thought it was the one creature yeah and so um, Nash gets into like why would this narrative have followed why would this have developed and uh one of the things that he discusses is just this simple idea of a rumor. So there, he references another psychological study where somebody sees a picture and then they describe that picture to a friend and then that friend to another friend and so yes. on and so forth. And then you ask someone who's never seen it. Yeah, there's a game. I forget what it's called. Telephone. Like a ho- yeah. Um, where you, so the, I think that's it, where you like someone writes down the word 
and then the next person has to draw that mm-hmm. word, um, and then the next person has to write what they think it is without seeing the original word, just the drawing, and the shambles. Oh. oh, the shambles that happens from <laughs> this miscommunication is amazing. Like within six people, you are in a completely different realm of of stuff. Yeah. It's really, really fascinating. And think about it, if you've never seen somebody, you know, because that's like a, an advancement in technology, riding a horse or domesticating a horse. So if you don't even know that this is possible or you've never seen somebody do this, how are you going to explain that to a person in a way that makes sense? So some of the psychology is like, maybe this is just how they made it make sense. It is one being. It is one thing. Yeah. Or when you're trying to um, explain this this craziness that you saw to a person or simply just rumors turning into utter chaos like what you were saying Sarah with like <laughs> just like the way that rumors do and um, one of the actually I found this very interesting one of the studies that they quote in this paper talked about a um, the way that narrative changes based on what you're familiar with which hilarious I'm sure nobody was familiar with a centaur but um some people saw a a picture of like a white man holding up a razor to a black man like kind of in a threatening way Mm. and as the story uh was passed by word of mouth the narrative changed to be the black person was holding the razor oh of course it did yeah really very depressing yeah but um but very scary to see how a story can change um, very very quickly and it's probably based on some you know internal and patriarchal biases that are inbuilt in whatever group you're distilling the information to exactly exactly and so um if you especially i think the 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 implication is that if you are exposed to something that you may not even if it's a little bit outside of what you're familiar with, you may change the narrative to say it in a way that is more familiar to you or more familiar to your audience Mm. without even realizing that you're doing it. So this is one of the psychological reasons that a centaur may have um, been introduced. But he does point out that this whole theory goes to shit if people were talking about centaurs before, like, skilled equestrians ever came. Um, (laughs) but, But there's not, like, I mean, well... This was in 1984. I don't know how much that has progressed. I don't know how much more we've learned. Um, but it could be that that's... It may be that that's been ruled out. But that's one of the things he brought up. Another thing that he mentioned that I thought was really cool was to kind of simulate the the frame of mind that ancient people may have been in. Um, a study was done on three- to five-year-olds where they showed them mythical beasts, just like the exercise that we did before, but we did it audibly. Um, They showed a bunch of preschoolers pictures of mythical beings they may have never seen before. So there were a few that were obvious to them, like mermaids or angels. Mm -hmm. They were just like, that's a mermaid, that's an angel. But when shown a centaur, they didn't know what to make of it. Hmm. And so some kids would say, man horse. (laughs) They they didn't know. (laughs) You're not wrong, kid. They didn't know what to call it. They didn't have a word for it, but they had words for the pieces. And so in their own mind, they separated. I know that that's a man and that's a horse. Mm, yep. Um, which is kind of the opposite. You know, if we were, I was saying before that the theory is they saw a man on a horse and made it one thing. And then it's just interesting that 
Some kids, when seeing the centaur pictures, said that is a man on a horse, specifically. Yeah. So to take the study a step further, they also compared, they went then to a group of college-age students, and they only showed for one out of 125, one 125th of a second, I think, that must have to do with the way the brain works, um, flashed in front of them an image of a uh, myth mythical being very similarly to how the preschoolers saw things they would say like that's a man next to a horse or that is a man on a horse yeah but they what's interesting is that one person said a centaur is a person on a small horse oh and it brings up the idea <laughs> that that, <laughs> that a horse is actually much bigger than a man <laughs> And I thought that was so interesting. And they actually take the time in this paper to say that a horse is going to age so much differently than a human. And so a horse at age three and a human at age three, like, like that's like basically like an adult horse. Yeah. And like a tiny child. Yeah. So like if you wanted to make like, if you wanted to make like a really correct like centaur you would need to put like a three-year-old <laughs> <as you're> like... <laughs> oh <laughs> like, no i was like damn i chose the wrong field like people are publishing about this <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy but i loved the the term that that they used to bring it all together is called this unstable percept or this idea that you, this, you are uncomfortable. It is unstable in your mind. You've got these pieces of information that you are familiar with, mm. but they are stuck together in a way that you are unfamiliar with. And so in your mind, it is unstable. It's a bit like hmm? the uncanny valley. Yeah. Like it's a, yeah, it really your is. perception mm-hmm. of something that you are so familiar with, but it's just not right. And it makes you very uncomfortable. Yes. Yes, yes. So the, the, the uncanny valley is so uncomfortable because you keep trying to make sense of it while you're looking at it. And you're like, this just isn't working. It isn't working. But you're trying to find that equilibrium again. Mm. And it's that pursuit of this doesn't match and I want it to match, make it make sense. That is, they think, part of the psychological reason a centaur came to be. Like, it doesn't make sense that somebody's riding a horse. Make it make sense. <laughs> Although now, I, I, I mean, it doesn't... I feel like it could go both ways because clearly people are looking at pictures of a centaur and saying, I see these two pieces, they don't fit together. And so I'm going to make it make sense by saying it's a person riding a horse. I, I found that a little bit confusing. I'm not entirely sure which, what I'm supposed to conclude, but these are all the pieces that I read. Yeah, if you never saw a horse before, or a person riding a horse before, you'd like, to you, making sense of that thing would be, oh, they have to be one being. But, you know, now that we've seen people riding horses, we say, well, the thing that I'm seeing has to be, you know, them separated. And so that's kind of what, like, that's how it makes sense in my head that, you know, when we flash this image to someone in our modern time, they're, they're seeing a, a man and a horse because we know that there is no single unit, you know, centaur. So I don't know. It's right, just, right. I could just kind of see yeah, it that, that way. Thank you. Yeah, no, that actually helps me make sense of it. Like wh- what the study kind of proves about, it's just the other direction. Yeah, right? exactly. But, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it honestly had never occurred to me to ask, like, why the fuck did anyone invent a centaur? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I just kind of was like, yeah, we talk and we joke about this. <laughs> me and all my ancient friends. Like, <laughs> me and all my ancient friends. I am, I always <laughs> got really uncomfortable with, like, the, um, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe trilogy series. I forget what they're called. Um, Narnia. That's it. Yeah, the Chronicles of Narnia. Because um, the Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in that series, is one of my favorite books of all time. And then we get into Narnia land with centaurs, and I became really uncomfortable. And even the, <laughs> because you even the movies, I really don't like the centaur. I am a huge James McAvoy fan. <laughs> he can do no wrong with cent- with being a centaur. No, I I love him, and I hope that we get famous for the sole purpose that he knows that he is my favorite actor, <laughs> and I hate movies. <laughs> I hate movies, but I like your movies, sir. Uh, but Sarah hates you. What no, I don't, I don't hate him. I just, I don't like the outfit. It's a scarf. With the, the horse legs. <laughs> like the horse leg accessory so okay no but this is actually interesting i wonder if they did the proportions differently like what i was saying about like the small horse yeah it does look like he's not overwhelmed by horse (laughs) (laughs) he's got a healthy amount of horse on his enough meat on that horse but yeah that is uh that is the weird fucked up trail i went on i love it i loved it i thought that was <laughs> so much fun i'm glad you guys liked it <laughs> sorry it was weird and gross <laughs> it wasn't weird and gross it was i mean back in ancient times oh who knows who knows what they what they thought back in ancient times but I, I think we need more mythical creatures in everyday life. I'm sick of of the reality of the world. Give me a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, ancient Celts would give you a unicorn. Mm, though, in saying that, rhinoceroses are unicorns, basically. And I think we judge them out of that title based on their size. So I'd like to, yeah. like to appreciate the rhinos while we're here. Well, thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Um, thanks for this really wild ride. I feel like I say that every week. It's always a really, really wild ride. We started on ISBN, and we ended up in some weird places. <laughs> Outer space, ancient history, and punctuation. Yeah, never a boring time with us, which, <laughs> which I love. Uh, if you want to hang out with us more, we would really love to hang out with you. So please hang out with us on Twitter. Uh, that's going to be at Go Ask Alice Pod. Um, Sarah, what are the other things? You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Go Ask Alice Podcast and TikTok for when I get my butt into gear and start making more of them. <laughs> you can see all of Sarah's cool outfits. If you want to hang out with Drew, just give me a kiss. <laughs> 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 G- 
Give Drew a smooch through an iTunes review or a does Spotify do review? Just review us somewhere. Tell somebody what you feel. We want to know. We want to hug you consensually. And use that that heart exclamation point emoji. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, iTunes reviews would be lovely and wonderful. And you can follow us on Spotify and on iTunes as well. So you never miss an episode. (laughs) See you next week. We love you, Steve. Love you, Steve. See you next week. Bye-bye. Oh, (laughs) Grandma's ass cheeks. Titties! SpongeBob.